0: Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show, and the individual to my right here is my housekeeper and co-host, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope everyone's been acclimating to our slightly modified 2023 format and uh, that it's uh, to your liking.
1: Thank you to Terry Millard for the nice note about Carswell's Corner. <laughs> It's nice to get encouraging feedback.
0: And it's nice to have the extra time this format allows. I did get a fair amount of book research done, and uh, we're taking care of uh, some much-neglected library maintenance. We
1: hadn't realized how many books need fixing. There were more than a dozen I took to the bookbinder. Some were just falling to pieces. Uh,
0: Mr. Catwallader knows his craft. If he can't patch it, he'll recreate what was there. He's been doing it for decades.
1: He was showing me books he was working on, and and it was really very interesting. I never even stopped to think that sewing's part of it. Apparently, you have to wax the thread. Natural beeswax, of course. Something about reducing friction so the pages don't tear. He hand-sews the pages, you know.
0: Uh, If it's expensive, that's how he does it.
1: He said he wanted to buy beeswax from me. No. I'd like to learn bookbinding. I think I'd have a gift for it. And it could save you money. I saw they have a class at the college.
0: It, it would be cheaper, but I'm not sure it's a good idea being around young people. They're a bad influence. If anything, I would suggest you uh, study under Cadwalader, um uh, more like an, an apprenticeship. I
1: don't... I don't think I would like that.
0: What do you mean? I thought you enjoyed all his show and tell.
1: Well... That was interesting, but he, he just, he just made me feel uncomfortable. What? He was leaning into me too much. I'm not sure what his intentions were. He's a hundred years old. Still. And anyway, can't you just see me on a college campus?
0: Uh, I can't control what you do with your free hours. I can only frown on it.
1: Also, he's kind of creepy. He has a room dedicated to his dead wife. It's sort of a shrine. His wife... room untouched since the day she passed. His
0: wife didn't die. She left him back in the 80s for an opera singer.
1: Well, he certainly wanted to show me the room.
0: I think I'll go pick up the books myself when they're ready.
1: Do you think I have the right clothes for college? Uh,
0: I don't know. Uh, and I'm kind of wondering about the uh, opera singer.
1: He seemed sincere about the room. Are you sure you're not thinking of someone know, else?
0: something odd about it. That was his story. I remember details like it was supposed to have been an Italian baritone. But there was something odd, like it was being treated as uh, a missing persons case. Uh, certain details didn't... Well, anyway, we should... Get started with the show.
1: I'm sure you're thinking of someone else. I wonder if I went if I'd be invited to join a sorority. Maybe as a kind of house mother, if they have house mothers.
0: Well, let's start the show. Okay. Episode 103 The Stone Eater and Other Curious Cases. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and I am currently working on a related volume. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including two monthly bonus episodes. And uh, I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Tonight, I'll be reading from a book published in London in 1825, entitled, The Terrific Register, or Records of Crimes, Judgments, Providences, and Calamities. There's uh, not an author attached to this book, but the editors have provided a preface as to their intentions. I'll read a bit of that as it gives something of the flavor of the volume. It uh, says, Satisfied that the real welfare of mankind ought to be the object of our labors, we were persuaded that by selecting from the histories of individuals and of empires, instances of suffering induced by human folly and of crime perpetrated by human depravity, we should excite that sympathy and arouse that indignation which are essential to the end we had in view. For this purpose, we ransacked the various sources of information open to us and have brought into focus a vast body of matter that lay scattered and even concealed from public inspection, And this material, it is impossible to peruse without the most intense interest. And I hope that you likewise find this material impossible to resist. I'll uh, be selecting entries which I happen to find intriguing myself. Okay, so our first offering starts on a... Cruel note. Cruelties upon the citizens of Lyon during the Revolution. A grand scene of destruction and massacre was opened in the once flourishing and opulent city of Lyon by a public desecration of all those things that had been looked upon as sacred. The murderers in chief chosen from among the members of the National Convention, were a play actor and a man who, under the old government, had been a bailiff. Their first step was to brutalize the minds of the populace, to extinguish remaining sparks of humanity and religion by teaching them to set heaven and a hereafter at defiance in order to prepare them for the massacre which they were commissioned to execute. A mock procession was formed in imitation of those observed by the Catholic Church. It was headed by a troop of men bearing in their hands the chalices and other vases which had been taken from the plundered churches. At the head of the procession, there was an ass, dressed in the vestments of the priest that the revolutionary army had murdered in the neighborhood, with a mitre on his head. This beast, a beast of the same kind on which our Redeemer rode, now bore a load of crucifixes and other symbols of the Christian religion, having the Old and New Testament tied to his tail. When this procession came to the spot which had been fixed for the purpose, the Bible was burnt, and the ass given to drink out of the sacramental cup, amidst the shouts and rejoicing of the blasphemous assistants. Such a beginning plainly foretold what was to follow, an undistinguished butchery of all the rich immediately commenced. Hundreds of persons, women as well as men, were taken out of the city at a time, tied to trees, shot to death, stabbed, or else knocked on the head. In the city, the guillotine never ceased a moment. It was shifted three times, holes were dug at each place to receive the blood, and yet it ran in the gutters. It is impossible to describe the scene of carnage or to give an account of each act of the, till now, unheard of barbarity. next one is uh, a 14 quality to it. I think it's by a uh, ship's chaplain, but I don't know what ship or when and where. Terrific visitation at sea. Captain Neville Frode says we reckoned ourselves abreast of the Caribbean islands when all of a sudden, about the hour of midnight, it being my watch upon deck, We heard a dismal crack, followed by a shower, as it were, of fire which broke over us as if the dissolution of the world was coming on. I was struck down and remained insensible for some time, but when I recovered found myself, through mercy, unhurt, but three of my watchmates were killed, another one very much scorched, and those that thus dismally lost their lives seemed to be reduced to a perfect cinder and all the buckles buttons and everything else of metal which they had about them were melted our main top mast was split to pieces and our main mast much shattered our pumps were split and one of them burst between the decks four of our lower deck planks were torn up and our main whale burst through about two feet above water and the ship was filled with a sulfurous smoke The horrid crack which preceded all this was of no long duration. Such an extraordinary sudden explosion, as it may be called, was hardly ever experienced, and the oldest navigator amongst us never heard of the like in these seas. We all lamented the unhappy accident and buried our deceased companions with decent ceremony, myself being chaplain upon the occasion, and reading the burial service, we committed their bodies to the deep. We soon repaired our other damages and made shift with our fore and mizzen masks to arrive safe into the harbor of St. John's at Antigua, where we supplied the place of our shattered mainmast by a new one. We were a very serious, orderly crew before, but this chastisement from heaven made us still more circumspect, and I read prayers twice a day, all the hands being called up for that purpose during the rest of our voyage to Jamaica. Where we cast anchor at Port Royal Harbor in about three weeks afterwards. And uh, now we have something of a uh, human anomaly, I think. Uh, an extraordinary instance of rapid growth. A boy, a native of Boussanquet in the Diocese of Allais though of a strong constitution, appeared to be stiff in his joints till he was about four years and a half old. During this time, nothing farther was remarkable respecting him, other than an extraordinary appetite which nothing could satisfy but an abundance of the common nourishments of the country, consisting of rye bread, chestnuts, bacon, and water. His limbs, however, soon becoming supple and pliable, and his body beginning to expand itself, He grew up in such an extraordinary manner that at the age of five years he had measured four feet three inches. Some months after that he was four feet eleven inches and at six five feet and bulky in proportion. His growth was so rapid that every month his clothes required to be made longer and wider. Yet it was not preceded by any sickness nor accompanied with any pain. At the age of five years his voice changed, his beard began to appear and at six he had as much as a man of thirty. In short, all the unquestionable marks of maturity were visible in him. Though his wit was riper than is commonly observed at the age of five or six, yet his progress was not in proportion to that of his body. His air and manner still retained something childish, though by his bulk and nature he resembled a complete man, which at first sight produced a very singular contrast. His voice was strong and manly, and his great strength rendered him already fit for the labors of the country. At five he could carry to a great distance three measures of rye weighing eighty-four pounds, and when he turned six he could lift easily to his shoulders and carry the loads of one hundred and fifty pounds weight to a great distance. And these exercises were exhibited by him as often as the curious engaged him thereto by some liberality. Such beginnings made people think that he should shoot up into a giant. A mountebank was already soliciting his parents for him and flattering them with hopes of putting him on the way to making a great fortune. But all of these hopes suddenly vanished. His legs became crooked, his body shrunk, his strength diminished, his voice grew sensibly weaker, and he at last sunk into a total imbecility. Thus, his rapid maturity was followed by, as swift decay. Oh, that was a bit of a downer, I suppose. Uh, The next one is another human anomaly story, but I think a little little more positive, perhaps. Astonishing Acquisitions Made by Blind Persons. Mm -hmm. We find various recompenses for blindness or substitutes for the use of the eyes in the wonderful sagacity of many blind persons. In some, the defect has been supplied by a most excellent gift of remembering what they had seen. In others, by a delicate nose or the sense of smelling. In others, by an exquisite touch or a sense of feeling, which they have had in such perfection that, as it has been said of some, they learn to hear with their eyes, so it may be said of these, that they taught themselves to see with their hands. Some have been enabled to perform all sorts of curious and subtle works in the nicest and most dexterous manner. Aldronava speaks of a sculptor who became blind at twenty years of age, and yet, ten years after, made a perfect marble statue of Cosimo de' Medici, and another of clay representing Urban VIII. Bartolin tells of a blind sculptor in Denmark who distinguish perfectly well by mere touch not only the kinds of wood, but all the colors. The most extraordinary of all is a blind guide who, according to the reports of good writers, used to conduct the merchants through the sands and deserts of Arabia. Professor Saunderson, who was deprived of his sight by the smallpox when he was only twelve months old, seems to have acquired most of his ideas by the sense of feeling and though he could not distinguish colors by that sense, which after repeated trials he said was pretending to impossibilities, yet he was able, with the greatest exactness, to discriminate the minutest difference between rough and smooth on a surface, or the least defect of polish. In a set of Roman medals, he could distinguish the genuine from the false, though they had been counterfeited in such a manner as to deceive a connoisseur who judged them by the eye. His sense of feeling was so acute that he could perceive the least variation in the state of the air. And it is said that in the garden where observations were made under the sun, he took notice of every cloud that interrupted the observation almost as justly as those who could see it. He could tell when anything was held near his face or when he passed by a tree at no great distance provided the air was calm and there was little or no wind. This he did by the different pulse of air on his face. He possessed a sensibility of hearing to such degree that he could distinguish even the fifth part of a note and by the quickness of his sense he not only discriminated persons with whom he had once conversed so long as to fix in his memory the sound of their voice but he could judge of the size of a room into which he was introduced and of his distance from the wall and if he ever walked over a pavement in courts or piazzas which reflected a sound and was afterwards conducted thither again He could exactly tell in what part of the walk he was placed, merely by the note which it sounded. And our next... The Stone-Eater There was, in the reign of King George I, a little dwarf who lived in Rosemary Lane near the tower, who, to get money, had traveled into several counties about England and showed himself as one that lived upon stones and would swallow them in great numbers and afterwards, shaking his belly, would be heard to rattle like stones in a bag. But that he lived solely upon stones was only a pretense to engage spectators and customers he ate of the best provisions his money could purchase, though as privately as he could. He daily walked about London for amusement and was so remarkable a figure that almost every person knew him, and he would, for sixpence and a quart of ale, swallow twenty large pebble stones. One day, inquiring of him what effect they had on his body, he said, he knew no harm they had ever done him but in making him very hungry when he voided them, and added, That they always came away whole. Well, that's good to know. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner.
1: Tonight we again have a poem written by the British journalist, lyricist, and poet, Harry Graham, who was known around the turn of the century for his humorously macabre poems. This one's a bit longer than the last example of his verse. It's titled, The Bath. Broad is the gate and wide the path that leads man to his daily bath but ere you spend the shining hour with plunge and spray with sluice and shower with all that teaches you to dread the bath as little as your bed remember wheresoe'er you be to shut the door and turn the key I had a friend, my friend no more, who failed to bolt the bathroom door. A maiden aunt of his one day walked in as half-submerged he lay, but did not notice nephew John and turn the boiling water on he had no time or even scope to camouflage himself with soap but gave a yell and flung aside the sponge neath which he sought to hide it fell to earth i know not where he beat his breast in his despair and then like venus from the foam sprang into view and made for home his aunt fell fainting to the ground alas they never brought her round she died intestate in her prime the victim of another's crime and john can never quite forget how by a breach of etiquette he lost all one fell swoop or plunge his aunt his honor and his sponge
0: I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. And among these, I'd like to thank our listener Cadaver Mouse for the renewal of a very generous annual pledge. Those commitments, which can be edited at any time, are attached to different reward tiers. Uh, the $2 monthly gets you access to hundreds of blog posts spanning the show's entire run. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive the two short extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes, so it's heard under the narration, uh, show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and Cycle Candle, and Unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al This Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can find at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.